Well, Merry Christmas and uh, welcome to Westside's Christmas Eve service. If you've joined someone as their guest and you've come tonight, a special welcome to you. If you've maybe happened to have seen the marquee outside or perhaps you received an invitation in the mail and you've joined us tonight on your own, man, a big welcome to you as well. My name is Norm, one of the pastors here at Westside. It is our joy, our pleasure to have you here on this December 24th evening. Over the last three Sundays here at Westside, we've been observing Advent. Advent is simply a word that talks about the coming of Jesus. It's the coming or the approach or the arrival. And so most often Advent is connected to Christmas time where we look back at that first coming of God in flesh as a baby born in a manger. And that's why Advent is really connected to Christmas. But we've also talked about the second Advent that is talked about in Scripture, that being the promised second coming of Jesus. The, the coming that the angels talked about in Acts chapter 1 where the disciples are looking up into the heavens and they said... The same way that you see him going now, he will come back again. Jesus is coming again. And so the Advent observance is really a looking back and a looking ahead. And we've been doing that over the last three Sundays. And we finish off today on this Christmas Eve. How we've chose to do it over these last three Sundays is by looking at some exchanges between the angels or individual angels and people that are really commonly connected to the Christmas story. We looked at Gabriel, the angel Gabriel's exchange with Zachariah, who was the daddy of John the Baptist. We look at the angel and his exchange, Gabriel's exchange with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the angel's exchange with Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, the husband of Mary. And tonight, we finish off looking at the exchanges of angels, or tonight, one angel and his exchange with the shepherds, but he will be joined by a whole army of angels. You just heard the reading of Luke chapter 2 in the lead up to our last song. Uh, we had read for us verses 1 to 20, which contains this angelic exchange. But in verses 8 and 9 and what you just heard, we specifically read that in the middle of the night, probably about two miles outside of Bethlehem, this is what we read takes place. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, this by itself, I think we would all agree, is a very unique event. I think when you have an angel showing up and you have the glory of the Lord shining all around you, that's a unique event. That's something that doesn't happen often. But what really kind of ramps it up or takes it to the second level of uniqueness is what these angel or specifically angel came to declare and announce. And that is the Christ has come. The Savior has come. The Lord has come. That ramps it up. That's unique. We can all, I think, agree on that. But what takes it even to another level of uniqueness, at least at this stage, we're going to see even another level from this one. But at this stage, what makes it very unique is who this angel came to announce the arrival of the Lord, Savior, and Messiah to. He came to announce it to shepherds. Shepherds. Stinky. Dirty. Lunch pail carrying, 
No influence having shepherds. That's who he came to declare it to. He came to declare it to shepherds that weren't in the city. They were outside of the city because that's where shepherds shepherd. They shepherd where animals are and people aren't. The angel came to announce the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord and the Savior to shepherds. Why? Anyone in PR work here? Anybody in PR work? This doesn't make sense. Right, there's a reason why if you watch the Super Bowl, the commercials on the Super Bowl cost a couple million dollars to put them on. Why? Because we want our thing to be seen by as many people as possible because we want our thing bought and therefore we're going to pay a lot of money for people to buy it and see it and all of that. This is the exact opposite. They go to the outskirts on town to people who have no influence, know very few people and hang out with sheep. That's who they come to. That's who the angel comes to. I have two sons. Therefore, I've been the, uh, part of the arrival of two births. I've been a part of that. Uh, when my two sons came, I wanted to get the word out as fast and as wide as I could. Now, this is pre-Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, but I did what I could. Uh, I got on the phone. I put up smoke signals. You know what I mean? Carved their stories on the side of my cave right, that kind of thing. You know, I wanted to get the word out. I rode my horse through the city center declaring that my sons have come hither. Let's make merry, right? I did as, I did as much as I, my point is, I wanted to get the word out. I wanted people to know my sons had arrived and, and not to be disparaging against my sons. My sons are no messiahs. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm no Messiah either. They would agree with that. They'd make sure that you knew that full well. But my sons are no Messiahs. But I wanted to get the word out. The Messiah, the Savior, the Christ has come. Let's tell it to some shepherds. So why? Why would the greatest of all messages come to shepherds who are on the outskirts of town? Why did the angel do it this way, coming to these guys at this time in the middle of the night? And remember... Angels are merely messengers of God. Nothing more, nothing less. So the more, more appropriate question is, why does God do it this way? Why does God announce the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah and Savior and Christ and Lord this way? Well, the answer isn't found in trying to make much of shepherds. Many do. You'll read and hear about people going, well, the reason why the angel came to the shepherds is because shepherds are a big deal in the Bible. Shepherd, shepherd. They care for the flock. Jesus is our shepherd. So the reason why the angel comes on the behest of God to declare this arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, to shepherds is because shepherds are a big deal in the Bible. That's not the right answer. The right answer and the reason why the angel came to the shepherds is understanding what they weren't. What weren't the shepherds? Well, they weren't royalty, aristocracy, wealthy, connected. They didn't have great influence. And they weren't in Jerusalem. They weren't in Athens, they weren't in Rome, they weren't in Ephesus, they weren't in Corinth, they were on the outside of town. They were in the wilderness. And so it's in that that we need to know. It's not because they were a big deal, it's because they weren't a big deal. 
And it's not because they were in a significant place, it's because they weren't in a significant place. They were lowly, humble shepherds doing their thing in the wilderness, and it's in that image where our answer is found. On a page just to the left of this text in Luke chapter 2, reread this in Luke chapter 1. You can read it on the screen behind me. Luke sums up the coming ministry of Jesus this way when he writes, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You see, coming to shepherds first paints a picture of those whom Jesus has come for and receives. He comes for and he receives the humble in heart. Jesus himself, about 30 years later, in what is called the Sermon on the Mount, one of his more well-known sermons, he himself says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. They are the ones that will inherit the earth. Peter, the apostle, he himself writes, kind of even taking it to another level, if that could be done, when he writes that God opposes the proud. That the proud are in opposition against God, but God gives grace. Think about that. God gives grace to the humble. And so what we see here by coming this way to the shepherds, it depicts who he has come for. But coming this way also depicts the attitude of the one who came. In describing Jesus, Paul writes this in Philippians 2, and you can again read this on the screen, talking about who Jesus was in his first coming, this first advent. It says, though he was in the form of God, he's the very, he's the very God now come. Though he's in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held onto or grasp, but he emptied himself and he made himself nothing. What is Christmas? It's the meek and the humble coming for the meek and the humble. That's what Christmas is. The meek and the humble coming for the meek and the humble. But we need to go further than that. We need to peel the layers back a little bit and ask, what did he come to do specifically? In this first advent, what did Jesus, the Lord, the Savior, the Christ, come to do specifically? Well, the answer is found in what takes place next. Let me read verses 9 and 10. I'll double back and then I'll go forward. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear, and the angel said to them, fear not. That's what he came to do. Did you hear it? What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to remove our fear. That's what he came to do. Jesus came to remove our fear. And of all the messages that are attached to Christmas, this, I would argue with you, is the most relevant to us today. That Jesus came to remove our fear. I know, I know that we live in this bubble called Vancouver. Ain't it great? We love it. I'm born and raised, man. I'm one of the few. Love Vancouver. It's a bubble. We love Vancouver, but even in this bubble that is called Vancouver, aren't there things that create even here angst, worry, and fear in us too? Do you ever kind of look around the world via TV or the internet or the newspaper, whatever, and go, what in the heck is going on? 148 students and teachers bludgeoned, burnt, 
killed in Pakistan? Do you ever get concerned about how indifferent you are to another story of a mass shooting? Like just kind of jaded? Kind of move on? Not a big deal anymore, at least in terms of our attention to it. And what about those things that cause fear in us more personally? What about the fear that we have about the health of a loved one? How about the fear that we have over perhaps our job, our career, our marriage, our kids, our loneliness, our singleness, our kidlessness, while the proverbial clock kind of keeps on ticking and ticking and ticking and ticking? Don't we have some fear at least, at least to some measure over things like that? And I'm all for living to 90. But man, I don't know I'm going to pay for the last 20. You know what I mean? Especially when my nest egg ain't exactly busting at the seams. In the last five days, I've met with parents who have been angst-filled over their kids, spouses whose marriages are breaking up, and individuals who, if a miracle doesn't happen, they're not going to survive their cancer in the last five days. All of them tears in their eyes. So I know even in the midst of this Christmas time, even in the midst of the carols and the, and the tinseltoe, tinseltoe, is that right? I think I've got that right. Mistletoe, not tinseltoe. <laughs> mistletoe. You should grab some tinseltoe if you can find it. It's a pretty rare thing. <laughs> but in the midst of all of that, many of us are living in fear at least to some degree. But before moving on, there's another fear. There's another fear that supersedes all the fears that I just referred to and other ones that you can come up with on your own. And it's hinted at in this text. It's the fear that comes when we stand naked, so to speak, in our unrighteousness before a holy and glorious God. It's a fear that supersedes all other fears. And I say this text hints at it because of what we read in verse 9. Let me read it one more time. An angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. And then it says this, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then it adds this, and they were filled with fear. In other words, there's a, there's a direct connection between the revelation of the glory of God and the fear of the shepherds. And they're not alone. The glory of the Lord, when it shows up in the story of God in what we call the Bible, has this reaction oftentimes. The shepherd's fear is in direct relationship with the presence of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Doxa in the Greek for all you Greek scholars. What is it? Well, the glory of God refers to the splendor, splendor, the grandeur, the radiance, the essence of God in a sense. In the Old Testament, the glory of God shows up in fire. It shows up as a cloud. It shows up as a light. The glory of God in the New Testament, by the way, shows up as... Jesus, the glory of God shows up, but tellingly what the glory of God did most of the time in the people who came in contact with it and in its presence was it scared them to death. See that over and over and over again. We see that here at the shepherds when the glory of God shone and they were not alone. This is common, but hear me on this. It's an appropriate response. It's an appropriate response for you and I standing just in our own abilities, 
and best efforts when we stand in the presence of the glory of the divine. So these shepherds are not only not alone, they're responding appropriately, but what does the angel of the Lord say to them? Fear not. Why not? Why shouldn't they fear? If it's an altogether appropriate response, why shouldn't they fear? And by connection, here's what I want to ask as we wrap up our time together tonight. Why shouldn't we? If one of the great messages of Christmas is fear not, but it's appropriate for us to stand in the presence of the glory of the divine and fear, why shouldn't we? Why does the angel say to the shepherd, fear not? Why does he say to us, by connection, fear not? How does he do it? Well, the first part of our answer, and this is noting what Jesus came to do more specifically and why we shouldn't fear is because Jesus entered our fear. He entered it. Fear not, he entered it. It's why we should fear not. Out of recognition of our fear, Jesus comes and enters it. In fact, Jesus doesn't only recognize our fear, he sympathizes with our fear. Over the last century and a half, let's call it, although it's really ramped up with the neo-atheists today, but over the last century and a half thereabouts, one often used critique against a a belief in God or the belief in God is a statement that it's just a crutch. The only reason you or people believe in God is because it's just a crutch. My response, you're exactly right. But who amongst us isn't stumbling? Who amongst us doesn't need a hand? Who amongst us isn't living with some measure of fear and trepidation and wonder? Who amongst us? See, here's the overarching problem with a critique like that. It typifies a culture that looks down at others' weaknesses and fears while ignoring theirs. Who amongst us wants us Who amongst us wants to be seen as fearful and afraid? In our culture, real men don't cry. In our culture, we're called not to let them see you sweat. Real heroes stand tall. But here's what I know about many of you. You're fearful. You may try to hide it with seclusion. You may try to hide it with stuff. You may try to hide it with busyness. You may try to hide it with a third glass of wine but you're afraid. Me too. Many times. And what the message of Christmas and what we see it here in Luke chapter 2 is, and it's a wonderful message, is that Jesus recognizes it. He sympathizes with it. And he enters our fear and he calls us to fear not. And why he does and how he can is heard in what the angels angel declares next to the shepherds it's heard in verses 10 and 11 and the angel said to them fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord in other words great news your savior your messiah Christ the anointed one your Lord has come so fear not why shouldn't I fear not why should I fear not Why shouldn't I fear? 
because our Savior has come. Who's our Savior? Savior of what? Savior from that which strikes greatest fear in us. Anointed to do what? Conquer our fear. Lord of what? That which causes most fear. Your Savior, your Messiah, your Lord has come So fear not. West side and guests tonight. Jesus doesn't simply tell us to stop being afraid. Jesus enters our fear. He stepped into it. That's what Christmas is all about. But he doesn't stop there. See, Jesus doesn't just enter our fear. Jesus replaces our fear. What does he replace our fear with? Let me pick up this account in verse 12. Goes on to say, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Fear replaced with what? Peace. But here is what you should be asking at this point. How? How? How does Jesus replace my fear with peace, especially from that which I fear most? Well, the answer is found in something strange, really strange, in what the angel told the shepherds in verse 12. I don't know if you picked it up, but the angel said to the shepherds, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths. This will be a sign. This, this will be a sign. The whole angel thing, right? The glory of God shining thing, not a sign. Baby wrapped in cloths, that's the sign. I've seen a lot of babies wrapped up in a lot of cloths. I've never gone, whoa, whoa, wonder of wonders. (laughs) Something marvelous must be about to take place because I see a baby wrapped in cloths. Why is this a sign? Why is an angel speaking to shepherds in the middle of the night saying this is the sign? Why? Well, certainly because of who was in it and in the manger, the Savior, Messiah, and Lord is now lying in a feeding trough. That's a sign by itself. But it was a sign as well because how Jesus came foreshadows what he came to do and how he came to do it. What do I mean by that? Well, the best way that I can sum it up is actually discovered and seen in what Paul writes in the book of Colossians, verses 19 and 20 in chapter 1, when he says this, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's who came, God in flesh. The fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. So that's who came. What did he come to do? Well, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. There's our word. Making peace. Fear replaced with peace. So that's who's come. That's what he's come for. But here's the question. How? By the blood of his cross. That's who. That's what. That's how our peace is achieved As one writer penned, and you can again see this on the screen, he writes, the Messiah's life will contain an unusual bookend for a king since he was born in an animal room and will die with robbers on a cross. You see, Westside and friends, 
The beginning of Jesus' life foreshadows its end. Every manger scene should have the shadow of the cross over it. So I've answered who was sent, Jesus, the Savior, Messiah, and Lord. I've answered who he came for, the meek and the humble. And I've answered briefly, but I've answered why he came to replace our fear with peace and does so by going to the cross, literally taking our fear upon his shoulders, not just entering it, but replacing it with peace, taking upon himself that which causes us greatest fear. My time is done, so I'll close with one last question. What was the motivation behind Jesus being sent? So why? We've answered why and who and what, but what was the motivation behind Jesus being sent? Well, in what is perhaps the best Christmas verse in the entire Bible, John writes this in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but have eternal life. What was the motivation behind the sending of Jesus? Love. Love of the Father towards you and me. God's love for you and me. Wonder of wonders. That's the motivation. But why is love as motivation for the sending of Jesus so important? Well, this same John writes in 1 John chapter 4, for there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You remember our greatest fear? We have those other fears, real fears, but that greatest fear, we fear death, we fear God, we fear punishment. But Jesus came, sent in love, to take our punishment for us. Love conquering fear, fear replaced with peace. Our role like any gift you receive this Christmas, receive it. Receive it. That's all you can do. It's the only appropriate response. Receive it. This great gift that is ours that we remember in this Advent season. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, on this Christmas Eve, as the light of your word penetrates our hearts, as we are reminded of the gift of life and faith and the glory of the heavenly host 2,000 years ago and are echo echoed here at Westside tonight, we open ourselves up to your spirit and give you thanks. We are truly grateful to you, Jesus, our Savior, Messiah, and Lord, that your story has become our story and we celebrate your birth we ask, we pray that you embed in us an overpowering sense of your abiding presence by the gift of your spirit and help us to take to heart the wonder of your love so we may walk in your ways and delight in your will. Help us, Father, to be the faithful, gracious, loving, giving, and forgiving people you would have us to be and that we forever walk in the peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Amen.